This series is called When You Hit a Wall. So be mulling on that while we pray. And you can keep your eyes open when you pray this time only as you look for the book of Nehemiah. It may take some of, some of you just a bit. Father, thank you for this group. Thank you for the hearts. Thank you for what you're already doing. Uh, God, to be with this group of people is, is the most fun I've really had in ministry, maybe ever, Lord, and, and certainly in, in several years. There's something about starting a new work and birthing a baby church uh, that just beats all, Father, for just making the heart soar. And God, thank you that uh, you've allowed me and called me and tapped me on the shoulder to do this. Lord, it's an honor and a privilege. And, and Lord, I pray you'll bless this church. I pray that we'll look back at pictures and different gatherings like this and, and just be amazed, even a year from now, just amazed. Look where we were. Look where we've come. Look what God's done. Bring us the lost, Lord. Uh, help us to very quickly get in a place where they feel like they can sit back and, and listen and hear your word and be moved by your spirit and not be uptight or anxious or anything. Lord, we want the lost to come in. We want them to hear your word, the life-changing power of your gospel, and to see you add sons and daughters to your family. Uh, that's one of the things we're going to be about, Lord. We don't want to just gather uh, fellow Christians together, Lord. Uh, even though we will grow and disciple, we don't want to just reshuffle the deck in a, in a community that already has a thousand churches. Father, we want to be one of those churches that grows primarily by conversion adding people to your family. So help us, Lord, to be a church that loves the lost, cares about them like you do, and brings them in, invites them, Father. Open up your book, Lord, as we continue in the series of Nehemiah, great, great book on leadership, Lord, and help us to learn because we're in many ways doing the same thing that Nehemiah did more than 2,500 years ago. So open up not just our physical ears to learn facts, but our, the ears of our heart, the eyes of our heart, that we can embrace them, internalize them, and, and change, be a changed people. We want to walk out of here different than how we came in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's called When You Hit a Wall. What I love about Nehemiah, I've taught it a couple of times over the years, it's the best leadership book in the Bible. And it's the most overlooked leadership book in the Bible. I think most people probably go to Joshua or Moses or a million different other places for leadership, maybe Abraham, and, and overlook this book. But many teachers, many pastors believe this is probably the best, most concise place to go for just incredible leadership. One of the reasons this is very straightforward, another reason it's simple, it's really, really simple. You can preach this to 10-year-olds and, and they can get it. So uh, at the same time that it's simple, it's very, very in-depth leadership principles. Um, anyone could grow from this. Just, here's my criteria, just don't overthink it. Can we do that? Just don't overthink that. Some of you are overthinkers anyway. When, we go, when you hit a wall, when I say that, you're already going, what's the Hebrew word for that, Pastor? What is the Hebrew word for a wall? What does it mean spiritually to hit a wall? What are you really driving at there? Well, the, uh, it's an incredibly resilient, let me give you the definition I'm using for wall, incredibly resilient, unsoft-like structure, usually made of brick, that does not give in the least when you hit it. That's it. I'm talking about a wall, a real wall. Don't overthink it. Everybody hits walls in life. I'm actually not talking about physically, but emotionally. Uh, when you come up against something and you didn't expect it and you thought things were going great and you just hit a wall and you're not going to go in that direction anymore. It stopped. Your, your progress is impeded unless you're the Incredible Hulk and you can go right through walls. Uh, something's got to give. Something's got to change. You're going to have to do something different or that wall is going to be the end for you uh, in the progress of what God's doing in your life. <clears throat> Well, as we infuse the DNA, and we're going to be doing that probably for about six months. Let, let me do this. Can I pause for a moment here? I don't know why it is. In this little tiny group, I'm looking at, I, I'm looking at, at people just, you look nervous. I don't know why. I should be nervous, shouldn't I? 
Yeah, you're, you're kind of sitting there going, what are we exploring? We're in a clubhouse. Is that a pool out there? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is weird. That's, there's a kitchen right in the same room, literally. What do we do? It's church. Gang, church is not a, it's not a building. It's not a building. Church is the people. So honestly, if it wasn't predicted to rain, we can meet outside and be the church. Where two or more gathered in his name, you can be the church. So relax. I love smaller groups because I get to ask you questions and call you out and embarrass you. I can't really do that in bigger. <laughs> this group will be half the size next week. Uh, so we're going to be talking a lot about DNA. We're going to be talking about a lot of things I hope to infuse right now because I don't want to have to fight real hard to get what God wants in this church a couple of years from now because it's just gotten too big and people are used to going uh, a different way, maybe not God's way. So Nehemiah built in a lot of DNA that had to change for the Israelites if they were going to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And if you're just joining us, that'll make sense in a moment. So we're going to track this story together because we'll find a wealth of wisdom, even similarities in our journey ahead. So Nehemiah hit a wall, I said. If you weren't with us in the first couple of weeks, let me tell you what it was. He got news from Jerusalem. They have been in captivity. The Israelites have been, the uh, Babylonians came, they took over, they ransacked the city, took most of the people away. Some people got away and escaped, thousands actually, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands were taken into exile into Babylon some 500 miles away. And they've been living there for a while, like 140 years a while. And so people that had actually seen Israel and had grown up in Jerusalem are, are dead and gone. Unless you live to be 141, you're, you're gone. Nobody's, nobody's there now that's seen it, including Nehemiah. And yet he gets some news as some sojourners come back from visiting Jerusalem. So there's some kind of freedom. They can visit. And they come back. And, and I don't know why he asked real excitedly. I don't know why he, he expected something different. But he got them together, and he's a pretty high-up official uh, under the king Artaxerxes, and he said, tell me how it's going. You can almost picture that he's excited like a kid. How's it going? Is, how's worship? How's everything in, in, in the homeland? How's everything in God's city? How's, how's worship? And the news he got was so bad. The news he got was so devastating and so unexpected. He hit a wall. He just literally hit a wall uh, emotionally. He said, well, the people told him the city's still in ruins. I mean, it looks like a, it looks like a bomb was dropped there. Probably didn't say that due to bombs not being invented. They said the people are unable to worship. They can't because the wall is just in, in, in shrabble. Uh, shrabble? That's a new word. Write it down. Rabble around the city. And, and so they're not protected. So they're scared to go to the temple. The temple looks good, but nobody will go. They can't worship. Uh, and the news devastated him so much that all he could do was pause and cry and stop and weep. That's all he could do. I want you to think about that because if you don't go and put yourself in his shoes, you're not going to get everything out of this book. So it's really a bad idea to read the Bible sort of like a textbook. It's really bad to read it like a little story and be detached. Put yourself there. Put yourself in, in, in these shoes. What was it like? Why did he care so much? I mean, one of the reasons you ask why he cared so much is he's got a really cush life. He's a pretty high. It's like Secretary of State is what this would have become. Uh, so why should he care? His life's comfortable. Why should he care what's happening to people 500 miles away, people he didn't grow up with in a city he'd never even seen, that he'd only heard stories about? Well, because he knew in the stories that his parents and probably grandparents had taught him that that was God's city, that that was God's temple, that God chose to dwell there, even though God cannot be contained in four walls. God said, I'll dwell among my people, and you'll be a light, uh, a city on a hill that the world will know me through you, and that wasn't happening. That wasn't happening. If you want to see a world reached, it was supposed to be Jerusalem. And if they're in, in, in rabble and the people are scared to worship and nothing's happening, then Nehemiah was devastated because he thought, then the mission of God has stopped. 
the mission of God has halted. It's not going forward anymore. Then how's this world going to be reached? So you see how this thing that would sound real little to you and I, he saw the big picture. He's going, no, this is devastating. This is huge. So first he paused. There's going to be a series of P's, and I want you guys to write this down. The first thing you do when you hit a wall is this thing that Nehemiah did. He paused, and that's just physically what's going to happen. when You run into a wall. You pause before you fall over. So he paused, and then he basically fell back. Scripture literally says he, his knees buckled as the sense of the word, and he fell back, and, and he wept. And he didn't weep for five minutes. I mean, he, he wept for days. For the first few days, all he could do was weep. All he could do was cry. And when the pain was still going, but he could finally muster some words, he prayed. So that's what we learned in the first couple of weeks, you know, just gathering at the home with about 10 people, and then last week with maybe 30, 40 people. First he paused, then he prayed. This week is all about how he plans. He plans. So he prayed, and I, I don't mean the little prayers let's talk about. Thanks for this food, God. Dig in, everybody. Not that kind of prayer. Days and days and days. Olympic, gold medal, huge, big-time prayer. And I want a, a show of hands here, but I really want you to think about this. When's the last time you prayed so hard about something that you prayed for months? You prayed daily. You fasted. You know, there's a friend of mine that started a church that's become national. And uh, I asked him, you know, same, a lot of same things as, as church planting experiences uh, with me. Uh, but one thing he did different that very much got me, and my wife and I have spent a lot of time fasting and in prayer in the last seven weeks. Uh, but other than liquids, he said, one thing I do is I fasted for 40 days. And I met this guy shortly after that because I thought he was Gilligan. I mean, he's very, very skinny, and he's actually a bigger guy than that. But he, he was coming off of this, and he had lost tons and tons of weight. He fasted just liquids for 40 days, which for some people, that could be it. I mean, physically, that's, that's huge. He said, I needed to hear clearly. I needed to hear God's voice. I needed to know. And a movement uh, has come out of that. So I'm talking about Olympic-level, huge-level prayer. Last week's prayer gang is going to be combined with this week's planning. They go together. And if you're a note taker, and I hope you guys will be, that'd be a nice DNA thing. Write this stuff down so you can dwell on it later. Prayer and planning go together. Can I hear you guys say that? Say, repeat that. Prayer and planning go together. Right, 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 right. Let's do it right. Prayer and planning go together. Uh, how many of you would say that you are, some people I've noticed are, are, are prayers. How many of you would say, and that doesn't mean you're not a planner, but raise your hand if you're more of a prayer. Can I see you? Uh, no, Alessia, and I got a few. You're more of, you, Michelle, you're both, definitely. I know Michelle's definitely both. In fact, I'd argue she's heavy on the planning side, much more than me. Uh, and so here's the danger. If, if you're more of a, of a prayer, the danger, I think, is that you can pray all the time and sometimes not have any kind of a plan, any kind of a plan. I mean, you can kind of know in your head what God wants you to do. It can be clear as, as day that he's telling you to move. And, and when people ask you, what do you do? And you say, I'm praying. What do you think uh, God wants you to do? Here's what he wants me to do. Well, when are you going to do? I don't, I don't know. I'm waiting for God for what? Well, I'm waiting for God to sort of levitate me and move me through the journey that he has for me. Well, he's not going to do that. It's a partnership. Prayer and planning go together. How many of you would raise your hand if you're, you're more of a planner? Just be honest. Well, we got a lot of planners in here. A lot more that are heavy on that. Here's the danger. Just be honest with you. Here's the danger if you're more of a planner. And here's my challenge to you. If you're more of a planner, you might tend to almost worship the plan and forget the prayer. 
I mean, you can really look at it. You're the kind of person who makes 100 copies and does everything in triplicate and hands it out and says, here's step one, two, three, A, B, C, here's what we're all going to do. And in the midst of that, you forget God. Or throw up a, a, maybe a couple short prayers and just kind of sprinkle a little Jesus on top of what you're doing. And that's a danger. That's a danger. It's prayer and planning. They go together. In fact, this is the best way I, I've ever heard it put. I think John Maxwell said this. I don't know if it originated with him, but he's the... He's more skilled at stealing slogans than anyone I've ever seen in my life. So here it is. Failing to plan is planning to fail. I'll say that again. Failing to plan is planning to fail. You have to, for those of you that are, that are primarily prayers, you've got to have a plan. You're going to see here in a moment, Nehemiah had a plan. He didn't just pray. So last week we ended with verse 11, and we'll pick up with verse 11 as well. Where Nehemiah said, after everything, all his prayer and all his, his crying and all his, his fasting and months and months, he ends with this very peculiar thing that we all probably would have started with. He says, now, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Uh, and I'll explain uh, in review what that is in just a moment. But I want you guys to know what we're looking at. We're looking at a man's journal that's almost 2,500 years old. We're looking at his diary. And the lessons that he learned, the prayers that he prayed, the answers that he received from God uh, through his life are going to minister to us if we'll let it. It's incredible stuff. It's like, it's like getting somebody's diary and just capturing it. and look. I don't know if this is the only time in his life that he journaled, but I know it's the only one that God kept, the only one that he kept for 2,500 years for us to grow and learn from, and it's valuable. They're going to teach us uh, to serve together even all these years later. How many of you journal? Got any journalers in here? Wow. Two. Me and Nikki, that's it. We journal together. Well, I, and I don't even journal that much. Uh, <clears throat> I've got probably six or seven started journals in, up in my library. They're incredibly interesting to read for a page, and then they just sort of fade off. And, and some of them, uh, the last couple ones, have a, have a lot written in them. But here's, since I know I'm not, I'm not disciplined in journaling that much, I've learned to journal in a little bit different way. Been keeping journals the last several years, but... They've tapered down to keeping the, they've tapered down to me keeping the marker moments of life. You ever heard that? Marker moments? The times of, of real pain or unbelievable praise and celebration. I'm now just journaling those. And I wish I always had. I wish I'd always kept those things because when God takes you through a painful time and you're looking at him going, well, what in the world is this? God, what good could come from this? I'm always looking months, sometimes years later, and looking back on that and going, oh, I see that guy. That was incredible. I couldn't see it back then. I had no idea what you were doing. In fact, I, I thought you didn't know what you were doing at the time, but it's beautiful. It's, it's perfect. And so I've begun writing them down, and I'm writing this one down. I mean, going through some, some difficult and painful things, this one I'm writing in detail. And I'm writing it with joy, and I'm actually writing it... Um, you know, right here. I'm writing it in the margin. I've got a big margin Bible so that I could write right in the margins. And in the Psalms that God's been giving me, I've been writing, journaling right there in God's Word. That way I know I won't miss it. Because I want to go back and one day, I think at Impact Church, where I want to shout His praise and sing out and, go, and preach about where we were and where we've come and what God did. Out of what looked like rubble. Out of what looked like disaster. And, and something that we look at and we go, nothing good can come of that. And I promise you that's what the people that are stuck in exile are thinking about Jerusalem. They can't worship. They can't do anything. They're being mugged. They're being robbed. They're being beaten. They're being killed. 
Their kids are threatened, so they don't even go into Jerusalem. The few that live there, probably most of them have moved out to the outskirts. And, and so they're thinking, what good can come of this? Yeah, God, this is your place. This is your city. This is your thing. But what good can come of this? It's horrible. That's where they're at. Well, when Nehemiah comes on the scene and does what he does, and by the way, this wall has been attempted by exiles and groups of people sent out for 140 years, and they can't get it rebuilt. They can't get it started. They can't even get sections of it done. That's how powerful the enemies around Jerusalem were. That's how big the threats were. That's how big their fears were. That's how few their supplies were. That's how little their faith was. They can't get it done. When Nehemiah gets there and assembles the people and brings the supplies, they get this wall built better than ever in 52 days. In 52 days. So that wasn't just a wall. It was a mega wall. It grew into a mega wall very, very quickly and very, very fast. So I'm looking forward to seeing what God does out of the rubble of this. So he says, beginning in 111, the second half, now is cupbearer to the king. That's his job. It's a very, very important job. It's a very dangerous sort of Jason Bourne kind of a job so that you know this is how it would go. You're working for a foreign king, and everybody wants to kill that foreign king. Artaxerxes was the most powerful man alive. He's like the president of the U.S. back then. And so other countries, other nations, they, they want him dead. The way they would kill a king back then is they'd slip poison into the wine or sprinkle it on the food so the king would hire some guy who was either very, very bold, very stupid, sometimes a fine line in that one. Uh, and he'd hire that guy to drink the wine before he tasted it. And if it was poison, uh, you would know because that guy would die. And then you wouldn't drink it. It's really, really simple how this works. Let's think about this. No need to any... I was about to ask you if there's any wine connoisseurs here. That's kind of a bad question, I think, for church. So we'll leave it at that. But from what I've heard, you, uh, you take the glass sometimes. It's funny to watch people in a restaurant go through all this. You know, you look at them and go, I, I don't know. Would that someone I want to hang out with, the snooty little cork sniffers? I don't know. They're sniffing the cork. They're swirling the glass. I'm not sure what they're looking for. They're sniffing it. If you've got to sniff a drink, something's wrong. You're sniffing the drink. They put it in their mouth. They don't swallow it, right? They swish it around and do all that. Okay, there's no need for that here. You're looking at your dead cupbearer and the spilled Chardonnay, all right? And you know, I'll have the Merlot, waiter. That's it. I'm not going to have the Chardonnay. That's obviously not a good cup. So it's a dangerous, dangerous job that he has here. So let's pick up now in verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Sounds like he didn't taste it there, but we're assuming he did. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? So he's going, it doesn't look like you have the flu or anything, so why are you downcast? This seems to be nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So Nehemiah sat. I mean, why do we even put this? Look, Nehemiah's having a bad day, poor guy. What do we do when somebody's sad? I mean, we send them an encouraging comment on Facebook. I've noticed people do that. You know, kind of buck up, give them a virtual thumbs up, hit the like button on something that they posted. We've all been there. Uh, and we look at this and we read about Nehemiah and we go, that's kind of, um, kind of being a baby. Is he? Is he? I think I'm favoring this side of the room. So I'm going to go, is he? Is he being a drama queen here? Or is maybe there a, a reason for what he's doing? I mean, you look at him and you go, man, quit wearing your uh, heart on your sleeve. Suck it up, Nehemiah. Why was Nehemiah afraid? You know, most people want to be a good employee, hopefully at the place that you work. But everybody has a bad day, right? Everybody has an off day now and then. Even if you work for the emperor, you're human. 
So you're thrown off the emperor's groove for one day. I'm sure ancient dictators were humble and understanding types. Don't you get that feeling about dictators? I'm sure they were very, very sit down and tell them your problems types. I'm sure Artaxerxes would understand. Well, I want you guys to get this. So thank goodness I found some ancient footage of what it was actually like back then. Perhaps it'll help for you to take a look at a real kingdom situation. There's a hippo! You threw off my groove. I'm sorry, but you've thrown off the Emperor's groove. Sorry. You were saying? What's his name? Cusco! Now, excuse me. I'm here to see Emperor Cusco. You see, I got this summons. Inside, up the stairs and to the left. Just follow the signs. Oh, great. Thanks a lot. Uh, and don't be fooled by the folksy peasant look. Oh! Uh, pardon me, that's mine. Oh, here you go. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, oh, hey, are you all right? Uh, here, oh, let me, uh, very kind. What happened? Well, I, I threw off the Emperor's groove. What? His groove, the rhythm in which he lives his life, his pattern of behavior. I threw it off, and the Emperor had me thrown out the window. <gasps> oh, oh, really? Oh, I'm supposed to see him. Oh, don't throw off his groove! Oh, okay. Beware the groove. Hey, are you going to be all right? Not actual footage, maybe, but you get the idea. So there was a situation where if you were sad, if you had a little bit of a frown, if you weren't happy-go-lucky in front of the emperor back then, and this is hard to believe, but I'm reading this all over with commentators, they'd kill you. They'd kill you. And so back then, whether you're sad or not, here's the deal. Fake it. Fake it. Pretend that you're happy. Some of you, maybe you're at a job you don't like, and, and you know a little bit of this. The boss comes around, and you go, oh, man, I got I to gotta put on a smile. He's got to know I'm one of the team. Yay, team. Yay, boss. Hey, I love my cubicle. Everything's great. Wouldn't rather be anywhere else than here. Well, this is worse because the penalty is death if you do anything wrong, if you throw off his groove, if you look sad in his presence. Now, watch this. Although it was a capital offense for a cupbearer, or close advisor to the king to be sad, Nehemiah couldn't hide his sadness. That part really struck me. He couldn't. He tried. You ever been that sad? You ever been so sad you, you, you can't hide it? Look up here, because I want to see. Have you ever been that sad? I mean, trying to fake it. Okay, I'm not going to wear my emotion. I know other people have problems. It's not just me. It can't be all about me, so here I go, and you can't. You're that broken? You're that torn up? So let me, do, let, me, let me do another thing, show of hands. I want to know. Who here is just a rock with emotions? And if you're not going to raise your hand, spouse, raise it for them. You're a rock. You know, you can hide it. You're tough, whatever. Just a couple, only a couple. Listen, by the way, if, thank you, spouses, for helping. I saw a little bit of that. Uh, I also saw somebody kind of do this. That's not very rock-like. I don't know if I'm buying it. If you're just kind of going like that, I'm not buying it. So we only got a couple rocks in here. And that means that you don't ever cry. You kind of got a poker face. People don't know where you're coming from. That's okay. Some people are like that. Uh, who here would say they're an open book? I mean, hard on the sleeve, can't hide. I'm probably a little more like that. Michelle, I think you're a rock. I do. I think my wife is more the rock. And some of you are going, we kind of hoped it was you, Pastor. No, it's my wife. It's... I'm a crybaby. I'll just, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. All emotions, not just sadness, but sometimes, I mean, you know when I'm upset. You just know. 
Um, some of you are going, are you upset now? No, I'm intense now. I'm not upset. Uh, I think Nehemiah was actually more of a rock. I don't think you get this job and you rise to this job if you're, if you're a crybaby, if you're a drama queen. And even though he's a rock, poker face, very solid guy, he can't hide it. So I really want you guys to get, what could upset him so bad that he can't hold it together? What can upset him so bad that he can't at least, I hate to put it this way, but fake it. I said to the king, let the king live forever. This is verse 3. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Well, how many of you, Charlotte's not your hometown? Most of you? Okay, a couple of you. Where are you from? Just cry it out. Just shout it. Where's that? California. California's not really a city. I don't know if you know that. But what city in California? Napa, okay. Where are you from? Buffalo? So you probably don't have a lot of sorrow when things happen to Buffalo, right? A lot of people are from Buffalo, remain from Buffalo. They don't, they don't really go back. It's cold. It's Got any Ohioans? Is that what you call them? I knew we would because for some reason they're all leaving. They're all coming down to the south. I, you know, I'm from, I'm from Southern California, and people hear that. They go, oh, you must miss it. No, I'm talking Pomona which is the armpit of California. And so I don't get all emotional about my hometown and, and what's going on there, but he is. He's upset about his hometown. I've never, I've never met anybody that gets so upset about their hometown. So I'll get to that in a moment. Nehemiah spent a lot of time in prayer. You know that. And, but then it comes time to speak. Here's his plan in action. He knows he's got to speak up at this point. A lot of times I'll ask believers in distress what they're doing about their situation. And I'll get something like this. Oh, well, right now I'm just kind of praying about it. I'm just, you know, I'm just kind of praying about it. Two problems that I have with that. Two problems. One, are you praying or kind of praying? Are you praying or kind of praying about it? You praying or not? Because more often than not, kind of praying is code for not praying at all, is what I find it. I'm kind of praying. Really? Well, what's your prayer time? When you get up real early uh, before you? I don't have a fixed time like that, Pastor. Not a real fixed time. It's more of an on or off thing. Okay, well, when's it on? When's it off? When are we, and, and you find out they're really just, they're not. Kind of praying is code for not, I'm not praying. I'm not, I may throw a word up there. I may have some anxiety. I'm hoping God translates that into a prayer. I'm not praying. That's what that means. Second thing, why are you just praying? I'm just praying. I'm just kind of praying. Or maybe you've heard it put this way. There's nothing I can do now but pray. There's nothing left to do now but pray. Well, I'm, I'm down to my last resort, so now I'll just Pray. <laughs> And I'm thinking, why was it Nehemiah's first resort? Why is it our last resort? It's one of these most powerful things, and, and, and it's our last resort. To have an audience with the living, all-powerful, omniscient God, and he will hear us, and we want to go, well, I'll get to that. Right now, I'm working my own plan. Really? Really? Is that better than God? Watch this. Here's some early DNA for Impact Church again. I've already said it. I'm going to keep doing this. How about this? The beatings will continue till we get it. We'll do this. Prayer. Prayer. Much easier to turn a speedboat, like I said, than an oil tanker. Let's continue. Verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? This is going good. Artaxerxes was known for killing people. And, and it, you know, for pleasure, for fun, for no reason, let alone an official reason. So listen to this. I prayed to the God of heaven. 
he's in a conversation right now, and he's praying. So he, this had to be a quick prayer that he's throwing up there. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I bet he spit it out that fast. <laughs> How's this going to go? See, Nehemiah is still praying. He's had long prayers. He's had months of prayers. He's had prayers with fasting. And here's a, a prayer of spontaneity. In fact, I look through the book, and there are eight times in the book of Nehemiah where he does these quick prayers of spontaneity. He prayed at any time, even while in conversation with others. You know, I've been preaching now for close to 15 years, and a lot of times some of the best prayers, most intense prayers I have, I am speaking. I am preaching to you guys, and I am praying. Some of you have misinterpreted that as ADD, but it's me preaching. It's actually I'm talking to you, and I'm, pr I'm praying right now. Because some of you, I, it's hard to read some of your faces. I've always struggled with reading faces when I'm preaching anyway. Sometimes I, when people are real quiet, and I'll think, wow, that, thank you, God. Well, that bombed, right? You know, nobody really listened to that. And then later people come up and go, that, that really spoke to my heart. That was intense. And it, so sometimes I know I read faces wrong, but I'll be praying. Christmas, Easter, when I know there's a lot of lost people, and I know people, this is a moment of, of hellbounders possibly leaving as part of the family of God. I'm praying intense while I'm preaching. Like Nehemiah, I know that God's ultimately in charge, that he's always present, that he's always involved, and that he hears and answers every prayer, so I'm constantly praying. Nehemiah could confidently pray throughout the day, and I know some of you probably want your prayer life to get better, so let me give you a secret here. Here it comes. This is worth the price of admission, or more, since it was free. He had established it. He could pray confidently throughout the day because he had established an intimate relationship with God during times of extended prayer. Okay, why could he pray short little prayers and have confidence? Because he had prayed long prayers. And he spent time in God's word, the Torah, the Pentateuch, what he had up until that point. He knew God. He knew God. And some of you, when your prayer life, you think, mine doesn't work. My prayer life doesn't even work. Think about what you just said. Work. Like you're trying to, trying to find a Rubik's Cube, trying to solve it, trying to rub the lamp the right way and get the genie to come out. Well, how do you know if it doesn't work? How do you know if it works? I just want to challenge you. By the way, I don't know any of you. I haven't read your mail. I'm just saying, how do you know? What are you basing that on? Are you praying that God will give you stuff, and if you don't get the stuff, you're saying it doesn't work? Because that's, that's a bad way to approach it. Are you praying that he'll absolutely pluck you out of every tough moment right when it starts? Because that's a bad thing. And when he doesn't, you say it doesn't work? Because those are prayers that God is probably very intimately working in your life, but you're not giving him a chance. Most growth happens during the growing pains of trials. So you're probably going to have to sit in it for a while and marinate in that, a la Derwin Gray. Marinate on that for a while. Uh, so some of you are now right now saying, but this isn't my style. Nehemiah's style is a little different than me. Okay. That's not me. It's kind of awkward for me to just you know, pray all day long. I really struggle with that. Well, do you know why? Here's an example. Raise your hand if you've ever met anybody very, very famous or popular. Anybody ever met anybody very famous or popular? Some of you have. And at least for most people, you know, they, they, they maybe are confident about, if I ever met that star, if I ever met the president, you know, we'd sit down and I'd tell them, you know, what I think about how to run the country. <laughs> you wouldn't. You would not. You'd be like a seven-year-old giddy little girl. Can I take your picture? Will you pose with me? That was all you'd do. And for some of us, that's how we approach God. A little bit of giddy time. He does something in our life. We throw up a little bit of praise, but we don't even know him. The famous almighty God of the universe, we really don't know him. We've spent no intimate time with him. 
So when it comes to prayer like this, you know why you can't do it? Because you have no idea who he is. You may be saved. You're probably going to get in by the skin of your teeth. Nehemiah's prayer couldn't have been very long because the, the uh, king who could have had him killed looks at him and says, what do you want? And I believe his prayer was this, God help me, because it's written there. That's how much of a theologian I am. It's very easy to get. Listen, let me give you some examples. When Peter was sinking in the water during the storm and he's walking on the water with Jesus, he took his eyes off Jesus, began to sink. He didn't say, well, it depends on your Bibles. Here's, here's what I saw in one Bible. Oh, great and holy creator and sustainer of all things, as he is sinking. Magnificent triune God, I beseech thee in the presence of thine disciples. By the way, this is the Rob Singleton translation. That's the Bible read out of and most ardent followers of thee to have mercy upon me and incline your ear unto me. He did not pray that. Here's his prayer. Lord, save me. That was Peter's prayer. And it was effective because Jesus, who's God, saved him, right? He reached his hand down and pulled him back on. He's walking on the water again. That's all he had time for. Why did that work? Because Jesus knows Peter and Peter knows Jesus and they have a relationship. It might have worked if somebody else came cruising by on the water and going, I can do this too because I trust that guy. Oops, save me. Jesus might be going, I don't know you. That would be a bad time to just start to get to know him, I think. So some of you, your prayer lives are weak because the person you're talking to, you really don't know him. Try fasting. It's not that scary. Try, try setting your alarm and literally spending more than five minutes in prayer. First time you do it, it's going to seem awkward. You will think you were there for an hour after three minutes because... Just haven't done it. It's different. But develop those praying muscles. Don't think, though, that you'll be heard because of your much speaking. There's a difference here. Jesus warned for that's how the heathen pray. See Matthew 6, 7, if you want to learn about that. Both Nehemiah and Peter modeled just the opposite. It's not the, this is a cool thing to write down because I came up with this, so it's cool. It's not the length of our prayers that counts, but the strength of our prayers that matters. Not the length of our prayers, but the strength of our prayers. And that just comes from a relationship. Two of you wrote that down, so it wasn't that great again. Gang, you can pray quickly and yet very effectively if your heart is in tune with God. Seven weeks ago, I was hurting so bad, my wife, my family, that I prayed myself to sleep night after night after night. And if you guys are ready, you can write down my prayer. Hope your hands are, are feeling good. You know, I hope you don't have carpal tunnel because it's a long one. Here it is. Abba, help me. Abba, help me. I don't know if I've ever in my life felt that kind of pain as I grieved the loss of a church that I planted and birthed and, and felt literally physical stuff just come over me and just, I felt like Nehemiah crippled me, knocked me to my knees, and I prayed that. I prayed that over and over and over. Abba means daddy in Hebrew for my father, daddy. That's how I was crying out to God. You're my dad, you're my daddy, help me. Help me, I'm losing, I'm losing your bride, your bride is dying. It's, being, it's been mortally wounded, I believe. And, and the pain is too much. God, stop it. Don't let it go on. And so I would just, that's all I would say over and over and over again until I got too tired and fell asleep. Uh, and in those days, Michelle remembers it. That would be great if I got 30 minutes. And then I'd wake up and the prayer would start again. It was a powerful prayer. And God hurt me. How do I know he gave me that peace? The past is all understanding. He just gave me peace. There was no reason for it. He just granted it. Verse 5, if it please the king and if the servant has found favor in your sight, that you'd send me unto Judah, into the city of my fathers, um, that I may rebuild the city. Send me to Jerusalem, was Nehemiah's request. 
It's probably not so ironic that it was in Jerusalem where the disciples were told to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them. It's God's city. Michelle and I, we've been to Israel. We've traveled to Jerusalem. There is a kind of a power, just kind of a presence, un unbelievable there. God's everywhere. And I know that to be and to walk the places where Jesus walked, though, is, is something else. I encourage you in your life, if you ever get a chance to go there. Verse 6, and the king said to me, the queen also sitting by him. By the way, I think that's a big deal. Because if he's going to not be put to death, uh, you'd want a situation that's the least intimidating and that has the least chance of Artaxerxes looking bad. And this isn't it. The queen's sitting there. He doesn't want to look like a wimp with his lady sitting right there. So this is the worst time. The Nehemiah, and, and, it's, and I find it incredible that Scripture throws that in. Don't miss that. Just parentheses. And the king said unto me, the queen's sitting right there. So this was a likely time. I expected the king to say, it's been nice knowing you. Doesn't want to look like a fool in front of his wife. But he says to me, how long will you be gone? How long is this journey going to take? And I bet Nehemiah was just floored going, okay, okay. He's open to this. I got a lot more requests. Let's just keep them going right here. And when will you return? And it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Now, it doesn't say here what the time was, but we can go through the rest of the book and find out what it is. And maybe he didn't know, maybe fudged a little bit, but it was 12 years. I'll be gone for a little bit. I need some supplies. How long do you think? I don't know, a year, two years, 12 years he is gone. Maybe he even said that. Gang, this is good because throughout Scripture, we see reference to set times in which the Lord works. Psalms 9.5, I mean Psalms 102.13, Exodus 9.5. There's a designated time, a set time for the Holy Spirit to work in and through any situation. Last week I shared with a small group in the MacGyver's home, uh, I reminded of them about Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where it says that very thing, there's a time and a place for everything. And it was made famous from those theological giants, the group, the birds in the 60s singing that, to every day, remember that song? Did I just heard it? Did I butcher it? Turn, turn, turn. There, I'll keep singing until you be nice. It says in there, there's a time for everything. There's a time to plant. There's a time to uproot. There's a time to tear down. There's a time to build. Uh, gang, with Impact Church and the launch here, we're in the fun phase. It's not that fun to tear down, to see something torn down. It's not that fun to live in the rubble of the wall. It's not that fun to see something that you did plant uprooted. It is fun to plant. It is fun to build again. It's not that fun to mourn. It is fun to dance. Unless you can't dance. But it is fun to dance. It's not that fun to cry. But there's a season for it. It's pretty fun to laugh. And so we're in the season of the second half of all those. This is a sweet, sweet time. And this time can only come because the season of pain came first. Listen, something has to often be reduced to spiritual rubble for something greater to be erected from it. And I wouldn't say often. I'd say always. For something beautiful to be born, what a seed has to die, right? When it goes into the ground. And how will this happen? How will he build this wall? How will he pull off what couldn't be pulled off for 140 years? How will we pull off a great movement and a great church sitting in a clubhouse with, with a tiny group of people saying that this is the birth of a movement? Well, it'll take faith. It'll take prayer. It'll take faith. It'll take serving. It'll take love. It'll take bonding together. But here, you're going to see from Nehemiah, faith. Great, great faith. In the Old Testament, the books of Ezra, it comes before Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They were put together. They didn't separate. I'm not sure why we do. Uh, but Ezra got permission to go back and rebuild the temple. Ezra wanted to rebuild the wall, and he tried like so many other people, and he didn't get it done. 
And I was looking at this this past week going, what was the difference between Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, Ezra wouldn't ask the king for anything. In fact, he said, I determined because God was with me not to ask for any help at all. I was going to do it my way. He's a little bit of a maverick. Nehemiah said, I'm going to go for everything I can get and partner up. It's a little bit different. Who do you suppose? I mean, Nehemiah literally asked, you'll see here in a moment, for everything but the kitchen sink. He asked for the sun and the moon from King Artaxerxes. So who do you suppose was right? Some would probably say both were right, because that's the political answer, other than Jesus. You just say Jesus to everything when you're asked, uh, and you'll be right. Uh, both were right. God uses different people and personalities to accomplish his will. Okay, blah, blah, blah. I don't think so in this case. I think Ezra may have succeeded in rebuilding a little version of the temple, a shadow of what it was really supposed to be, but he could get nowhere on the wall in order to give people the protection they needed to go to God's house and worship because he didn't have as much faith. Now, I'm in the minority with that one. I admit it. But that's what it looks like to me. Because Nehemiah was able to do in 52 days what couldn't be done in 140 years. Therefore, when other people looked at what couldn't be done for 140 years, they just said, let's not even try. I don't have enough faith for that one. I think that's where Ezra was. But gang, what good is a nice, shiny building if no one's coming to it? What good is a nice, shiny temple that they build if no one's going to come to it? So I'd like to suggest to you a different take on this, that Nehemiah got more accomplished because he had greater faith. Despite, it doesn't mean he didn't have fear. Despite his fear, he went through every single door the Lord opened, and God blessed every one of them. Because of his faith and boldness, we'll see in the weeks ahead, like I just said, that the wall was built in ridiculously few days. It should never have been able to be built in 52 days. And the people are able to worship at the temple, and a movement back to God gets underway in Jerusalem. And in fact, the biggest problem the Israelites had for thousands of years before this time was eliminated for all time. When this group goes back and the exile is over and they rebuild the wall and they can worship, the high places are torn down and false worship of other gods ends for the Israelites forever. You need to get that forever. As you read through the times of Saul and David and Abraham and all those times, you hear about the high places and you hear about Baal worship and you hear about Asherah poles and you hear about all this false stuff. That's over. That's over. How big is this thing Nehemiah did? All cult worship, all worship of false gods ceases. Ceases. That's huge. This is much bigger than just rebuilding a wall. Something changes in the heart of the people, verses 7 to 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases you, let letters be given to me of the governors of the province beyond the river. So he says, I'm, I'm, I know there's going to be trouble. There's going to be some people I run into that are definitely not going to want to see this. Can you give me a letter? Because he's the most powerful man in the world. That they might let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Ashaph and keeper of the king's force that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy myself. <laughs> he's going for broke here. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Ezra said the good hand of God was upon him too. Different outcomes though different outcomes. After his prayer, Nehemiah asked the king for permission to go to Judah. Watch this. There's another one of those things I want you to get. As soon as he got a positive answer, he asked the king for additional help. Nehemiah's sitting there going, okay, here we go. As soon as he got a yes, he said, that's you, God. Let's go for everything. That's gutsy. That's huge faith. So some of you are going, uh-oh, does that mean we should run when Pastor Rob comes to us and asks for help? I don't think you should take it that way. I really don't. I think maybe you should take it like, if I'm able to do this, if I want to be a part of this and God has called me, I'm going to ask God, can I do this? I'm going to do it. And if he asks more and, and I really think this is God talking and I search the scriptures, I'm going to do it until God says no. 
And we'll see if that doesn't start a movement. Sometimes when we have needs, we hesitate to ask people for help because we're afraid to approach them. Afraid of how it'll be perceived. Not Nehemiah. Not at all. He went directly to the person who could help the most. Unashamedly said, well, I know, the, I know what this is for. And if he would have really spoke his mind, he said, this is for something bigger than you are, Xerxes, because you're not God, even though you make people worship you like you're God. This is for the actual God, and this is for his kingdom, so I cannot lose, so I'm going to ask you for everything, and you're going to give it to me. And you won't even know why. So in verse 5, Nehemiah, I want you to get these three things. It's a progression that he's doing. Nehemiah asked to be sent. In verse 7, he asked to be kept safe. And in verse 8, he asked to be supplied. And we're following the same track. To be sent, safe, and supplied. Sent, safe, supplied. Some of you will ask and have asked a lot in your life, why doesn't God use me? I want to do something big. I want to ask for a show of hands, but I know you felt that. I want to do something great. Why doesn't God use me? Why doesn't God send me? Ketty, how old are you? Ketty's 16. She's leading worship today for people twice her age, some three times. I won't go any further than that. She's lead, a 16-year-old. I've said I've done this before in planting churches. It's hard stuff, but I don't remember a 16-year-old getting in front of a group and leading worship that confidently. How old's your friend? 18. You don't have a name tag on. You know you have to have a name tag? Okay. You're called the friend now until you get a, until you get a name tag. 18, 16-year-old leading worship. And they did a great job, by the way. So let me, um, hey, look, I'm going the same amount of time I've always gone. Um, but I'll wrap it up in like five Rob minutes. Why doesn't God use me, some people ask. Well, look at this. Jesus said, until now you've asked nothing in my name, John 16, 24, asking you'll receive that your joy might be full. So we go, I ask God all the time for stuff. Do you ask in his name? Yeah, I always throw that moniker on there. I, I don't mean the formula. What does it really mean to ask in his name? That means you know him so well, you know his will, that your will and his will are the same, and you're traveling the same way. And because what you ask is his heart. He's going to do that every time. He's going to open that door every single time. It's always going to be yes. If it's no, you're probably off a little bit. If you're like, no, I know God wants me to have a Ferrari. I'm pretty sure I was like, no, you're probably wrong. You're probably off. He probably doesn't care about your Ferrari. Uh, and if you're one who wonders why God isn't using you, have you, like Nehemiah, asked to be sent? Have you? Send me, God. Use me. I'm scared of a church plant. There's a few people in a clubhouse. I like the donuts. I don't know about the rest. Uh, but I want to be a part of something big. Send me. If he does send you, do you wonder, will I be safe? Some of you have been missionaries in other countries. Will I be able to handle it emotionally and physically? Something like this, you wonder. And Jesus would say to you what he says through his servant Paul in Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. But I don't have the supplies. I don't have the training. I don't have the qualifications, you might say. Gang, the idea for Impact Church started, believe it or not, started about three years ago. So I'm going, wow, really? I, mean, I thought it was like a couple of weeks. No, it started about three years ago. And I've been praying, and I've got it in a series of quiet times. I've got 30 years of quiet time diaries at my house where I pray for these things. But in the last three years, that's where you have the vision statement that you heard all the time at Southbrook Church. You know, that, that we exist, you know, really to change the world. We, we're going to put a permanent mark on the body here first then the community, and then the world, and it's going to be so impactful that it changes the world long after we're gone. It marks the future. 
even. Where did that come from? That came from one of these summers when I went away and I said, God, how can we be more than a church? How can we be more than people that gather and sing and hear a message and go home? Some are changed, most are not. I don't want to give the rest of my life to that. And I began really battling for that and thinking that maybe I'm not the guy, maybe I'm not the leader, maybe, we, you know, how, we, and so what's his answer? Uh, if you'd asked me five weeks ago, I would say it's not this. But right now I'm saying it's this. I really do. It's to start afresh, to start clean, because God says, I don't need a thousand people. Remember the biggest movement ever called Christianity? I needed 12, and then I disqualified one right off the bat. So I had 11, and we changed the world, 11. It's funny. You know, when Jesus had really huge crowds, he always preached it down to nothing. He was a horrible church planter, the worst ever. He had 20,000. He feeds them Chick-fil-A. They're all doing great. They want to follow him, and then he says, drink my blood and eat my flesh. Gone. Everybody. That's a little weird. They all leave. He's got 12 people, and he's excited about it. He's got 12 people sitting there, and I can picture him going back. You're not going to leave also. Anybody want to leave? Because this group's still too big, as far as I'm concerned. And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, so you blew it church plant-wise, but we'll try again. Maybe you could raise someone from the dead. That works good when you do that. We usually, that's a crowd pleaser, so try that while tightrope walking, and maybe we'll get another crowd and feed them at the same time. And Jesus says, excitedly, if you'll stick with me, this is how we'll change the world. So he spent his time. 24-7 with 12 guys building his life into him instead of the big venues that we see so much in America. Interesting. I'll never leave you forsaken, but I don't have the supplies on other friends. I have no doubt that this is what God's doing, that he's doing something great, and I believe this could be start of more than a church. I really think this could be a start. Probably is the start of the movement that God put on my heart like 15 years ago. But look around. We don't have a lot. We had a 70-foot wide, 20-foot high screen where I was before with $50,000 projectors, three of them. We don't have that. Can we pull this off without a $50,000 projector? Yeah. Let alone three, I don't know. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can. Yeah, but what if we only have two mics? Certainly that'll blow it, right? No, we could probably still do it. Well, what if we don't even, what if we're meeting in schools for a while? Can we pull it off? Don't we need a building? No, we really don't. We don't need any of those things. We need hearts, we need commitment, we need faith, we need prayer. Nehemiah lacked the supplies to build the wall, but that didn't stop him. He asked the king for them. I want to tell you guys, I've been asking the king to build this thing. Every time we've met, there's been more people than the time before. We've only met a couple times, so maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm a little excited, but I think it's going to keep happening. I really do, and I think it's going to keep growing. And I'm going to come to many of you. I've done it in the past, and I'll do it again, and I'll say, do you believe in this? Here's what I think God needs. Here's what I think God wants. Here's what he may be asking you for. Then I came to the governors beyond the river, gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant of the Ammonite, heard of this. Now remember these guys, because we're going to be fighting them for weeks now. Sanballat and Tobiah, idiots. These guys are constantly going to try and thwart the Lord's work. When they heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was a man coming to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So hearing that someone was coming to rebuild the wall, the enemies of God's people were exceedingly sad. They were grieved. This shouldn't be surprising. It really shouldn't. For any time the Spirit moves in, the enemy will rise up. You can absolutely go to the bank with that. Believe it or not, not everyone will be thrilled that we're planting Impact Church. Believe it or not, not everyone's not going to be universal clapping and excitement. Hard to believe, but it's true. Uh, there are going to be some that won't want to see the church get off the ground, and that's not just Satan. 
Who doesn't want to see any church get off the ground? When a work of God gets underway, uh, it's not that there might be opposition, gang. There will be opposition. You can count on it. And here's another one of those facts. However, cling to this. God's work, done God's way, and in God's time, will never lack God's resources and support. So say it again. God's work, done God's way, and in God's time, will never lack God's resources and support. We'll always have it. Do you believe that? Wow. Do you believe that? Yes. That's better. That's a little bit more convincing. Scared me on the second one. So we'll end with this. I came to Jerusalem and there was there three days and I rose in the middle of the night and had some few men with me. Neither did I tell any man what my God had put in my heart. So he's there. This incredibly powerful servant of the king is 500 miles away. He's rising at night. He's, he's, he's going around the city. Neither was there any beast with me. He's walking. Uh, no, he's not. He's riding a donkey here. That's all he's got with him. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well. So he's going around the city. He does this for three days. People are going, weirdo, what are you doing? Are you just going to ride around? Is this a Jericho thing again? And the walls will tumble, and this time they'll just go up? So upon arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah quietly surveyed the city by night. There are times in our lives when things are dark, when it seems like nothing's happening. I think in reality, those are the times when God's about to move. Those are the times when the Spirit of the Lord is surveying the situation, checking out what needs to be done, allowing you and me to go through certain periods of dryness or desert times or darkness because he's about to do something explosive and powerful. I've seen it in my life over and over again. I know it's true. If you're in that place, take hope. God hasn't forsaken you. He's simply preparing you. So... I got more, but I'm skipping to the very end now because, wow. Getting the dream of partnering with God for a movement seems for some, because of how powerful uh, and really how many lives were changed through Southbrook, I know. And I look back fondly. 6,000 plus people came to know the Lord. We baptized well over 2,000. That's something that will mark the future. Because when we get to heaven, there's going to be 6,000 people, brothers and sisters, that will fully realize then because of the ministry of that. But it looks like the dream kind of died. Weeks ago, that was the feeling in the Singleton home. We hit a wall that made us pause. Our first reaction, even our kids, was to pray, was to fast, while God showed us that our dream was his dream, wasn't dead and that it was, in fact, to take place right here in North Carolina and would revive again.